First John chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word right here. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And so we do ask that you would fulfill your very word. You have said that we have been given understanding and so we pray for it now that we might understand your word more richly and live more obediently in your grace given to us freely in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you've uh, been around here for quite a while, I guess, you probably have figured out at some point what my favorite candy is. In fact, actually, it's Josh's favorite candy as well. Probably not Nick's. My favorite candy are the little jelly beans, Bertie Bott's Every Flavored Beans. Ah, they're my favorite. Some of you know what those are. You're already kind of giggling, laughing, particularly if you were here for Nick Penuloza. Some of you don't know yet because you don't know what those are. What they are, little jelly beans, they're made by Jelly Belly. And in each box, there's a whole bunch of different colors, but each color has two specific flavors. So you get one that's a slight pale orange with red spots, and when you eat it, it is either the most delicious peach jelly bean, or it's vomit flavored. And the problem is you can't distinguish by looking at it. The only way you can kind of fully figure it out is to eat it. And we have many times in this church in various places played the game where you all put the colors in and everybody grabs a color and eats them. In fact, actually, I have permission to tell this. It was the Penuloses, I think, probably third week here when they came to Flocks. 
It was the Boldens going away party when they moved to Tennessee, and we proceeded. I think there were about nine of us, and the first one was a safe one. It wasn't too bad. The flavors were, I think, like toothpaste or something. That was the bad one. But the second one, the good flavor, I think, was something like chocolate pudding, but I remember the bad flavor was canned dog food. Because I got the good one. It was fine. But when I go to count out the next round, we're missing someone. And it was about that point where I heard Nick throwing up in the kitchen (laughs) in the trash can. Again, that's part of the joy of it is it it looks the same. Yeah, it was that good, actually. It really was. It was my favorite part, Caitlin going, go to the bathroom, Nick, go to the bathroom. It's, It's my favorite part. See, the joy of that is that one is really good and one is really bad, but you can't tell the difference by looking at them. That's part of the fun is that you really can only kind of tell the difference when you eat them. And by that point, you're committed. There's really kind of no way of getting out, right? You got the rotten fish one. I'm so sorry. Your breath is going to be terrible. There's no way out of that. But unfortunately, while that's fun with kind of silly and nasty foods, we've let that work backwards into how we think about the church where we we kind of unintentionally think about people and say, well, you know what, everybody kind of looks the same, and the only way to determine if someone is a Christian or not is really by their heart. And you see, actually, John's been kind of working through an entire book to say that's actually the entirely wrong approach to the church. To say that the good beans and the bad beans are all lumped in together and everybody looks identical. In fact, actually, he tells us as we get to this section, working through the entire book, classic John, leave it at the very end to tell us what his whole purpose in the book was. First, that God's people are designed to have blessed assurance, to have assurance of their salvation. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Look, I write these to you Christians. Why? Why did I write this book? What's my whole purpose in writing this book? So that you may know you have eternal life. I've been giving you tests all along that you can employ to distinguish if you yourself are a Christian and that you may utilize in helping understand if others are Christians. He's given us doctrinal tests. Anyone who knows the Son of God. Well, if they don't confess the Son of God, they cannot be Christian. This has been one of those really intriguing things I've done in my PhD is I've studied the history of American preaching and how many of those key influential preachers in the history of American preaching do not confess that Jesus is God. In fact, actually, if you wanted to name like maybe the 10 most influential, I'm going to probably go four of them at least. Don't believe Jesus is God. It's crazy that we're comfortable including them in the history of American preaching, but according to John, they wouldn't be included in the church. That first kind of key element is a doctrinal, a testimony. You have to understand who Jesus is. And he's also given us the test of pragmatism of, okay, let's look at how people's lives have been changed. Is your life different from when you met the Lord God? 
Now, for those of you that are converted later in life, that's usually a fairly easy question. You can look back at four or five or 10 or 20 or 50 years and go, man, I was a buffoon and I'm being generous. Look at how life is different now. Look at the evil decisions that I made back then. Look at how I sought out evil. I didn't even wait for it to find me. I went looking for evil. And look at how different life is now. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying it's different. And for those of us that grew up in the church, and this has been kind of part of our DNA, we we don't have that kind of conversion moment exactly to look back on. But the, the testimony is no different. To be able to look back and say, look, 10 years ago, was I struggling with sins that are different now? Is there progress? Am am I seeing victory in some form or fashion? Again, not perfection, not in totality, but is there a genuine progress? Because only Christians have victory over sin. Because the only way you have victory over sin is to have the Spirit within you, to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus, to have the Spirit's power transforming you. And so you may be different. He's given us the test of love. Christians will love one another. They will love the Lord's people and Kind of implied, you know, you got to be worried if you don't love the church at some point. This is a point of concern because the design is that when we are redeemed, we are united as God's people and we will love the saints. And he's worked us through. Look, anyone who hates his brother continues hating his brother. And that's a bad sign. And all of these things have been written so that you may know. So that you don't have to kind of live your life wondering. What is a Christian? What's not a Christian? What does it mean to be in the kingdom, out of the kingdom? What what does it mean? You all know I just took my comprehensive exams for my doctoral work. And the, the best joy about this, I was talking about it earlier, is they don't set clear expectations of what passing is. So I have to wait two more weeks to get my scores back. I have no idea if I passed, simply because I don't know what passing grade even looks like. It's not a question of, did I hit the target? I don't know where the target is. I shot at something. I hope the target appears when the arrow hits. (laughs) The Lord's not that way. That's not how he's operating with his people. He's saying, look, salvation is not one of those things that, like, you know, maybe if you die in battle or you die killing the infidel when you wake up in the afterlife, you've made it into heaven. And other than that, you better hope. No, that's not how God operates. He's saying, look, he's designed salvation to be such for his people that they may know that there's a reality, there's a a strength, that there's a solidity to the faith that we can be aware of what God has promised and we may trust it. And three of the simple ways to look, the confession, the transformation in living, and a transformed relationship to the people. Now, he couples on top of that the spirit indwelling and the spirit's testimony, but four tests, really, that you may know that you have eternal life. And it's important because he he kind of frames out his purpose to say, look, I wrote this so that you would know that you have eternal life, and that's a really important thing. But interestingly, all of the things he's going to follow with are in the now, here and now. 
It's not like he says, I wrote this so that you know that you would get to heaven, and when we get there, we'll have a good time. I mean, now's kind of up for grabs, but when we get to glory, it'll be okay. No. In fact, actually, he makes a strong transition from saying, look, God's designed the faith so that you may know that you have him now. And the reason is because right now, the saints have a whole bunch of privileges attached to being a child of God. It's a shame we live in a world right now where the idea of privilege is really, I think, becoming a dirty word. Certainly a bad word if you read in the larger media. Uh, It's not. It's not a bad word. It means privilege is an honor or an ability or a function that comes with a certain station. I have the privilege of preaching. I am your pastor. It's an honor that I get to do this. It's attached to my station as a preacher. Interestingly, John's going to kind of work this out to say, look, if you are a saint, there are certain privileges that come with being a child of God. Those privileges are inherent to that relationship. If you are a saint, you can't get away from these privileges. You can't, uh, you know, stall on them. You can't make them not happen. They come with the territory. And we're going to highlight three of these things. First is prayer. All right, so verse 13, he said, I wrote these so that you would know that you have eternal life. 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is the consequence of that eternal life. This is even more so, I'm going to say, the confidence of that knowledge of eternal life. If you know you have been saved, it will impact your prayer life because you know you're supposed to ask. It's interesting. He's not going to talk about here giving thanksgiving. He's not going to talk about repentance. He's not going to talk even about adoration. He's going to talk specifically about requests. If you are a saint, part of your privilege is you are supposed to ask God for help. It's part of who you are and what you're supposed to be. This is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. There's a whole bunch of pieces kind of thrown in here with this relationship of prayer is to say, look, we're supposed to ask. And if you're a saint, he listens to what you ask. And he's so wise and good that if it's a good thing, he hears it and answers it correctly. And if it's a bad thing, he doesn't pay attention to it. And whatever we ask... As his child, when we're asking according to his will, he hears it and he answers it. You think about how that that transforms our knowledge of prayer. To know that if I am a child of God, I'm not praying in some sort of kind of mysterious, optimistic, I kind of hope he hears sort of fashion. You all know that the kind of moment I'm talking about, most of us, it's when we're talking usually in the most serious part of a conversation on your cell phone, and one of the two parties loses service. And you've just said something really important, and the line goes dead. 
Um, did you did you hear me? Um, no, you can't. We can't be gone now. Like we have we have to finish the conversation right now. Like we can't just leave it this way. Are, are you there? Hello, hello, hello. You know, you all know that moment of like. Did they get it? Did they not? Like, do I call them back? Are they going to call me back? Are we going to call each other at the same time and then both of us not get each other? And then I'm going to call them and then they're going to call me and we'll call each other at the same time and then an hour later nobody's reached each other? What, what are we going to do? Now he's saying, no, look, look, that's not how prayer works anymore. If you're a child of God, you know he hears you. You know he answers you and he's so good and wise he answers you in the best way possible. Sometimes that's with a no. Sometimes that's acknowledging that the thing you're asking for is terrible for you. I mean, you think about it, and I love this kind of question you talk with kids. Like, if you could have three wishes, what would you make them? You know, I'd love to live in a house of pizza. <laughs> no, you, you really don't. It's a terrible idea. It'd be fun. No, it wouldn't even be fun for the first 30 seconds. It'd burn your feet and your hands, and then it would go soggy and smelly. It'd be terrible. <laughs> Right? Well, I'd like everything I touch to turn to gold. Hmm, have you read the story? It's terrible. He goes to give his daughter a hug. Oh, no. The Lord's more gracious than that. He answers, but sometimes saying no. And then we get to the hard part. In fact, actually, this far part of the sermon so far, you're probably going, okay, I can live with this. I'm okay with this sermon. He hasn't stepped on my toes yet. I'm not upset. Maybe a little bit confused. Maybe I stopped paying attention a little bit. That's fine. But I'm okay up to this point until we get to verse 16. And John, being wonderful John, throws a massive curveball. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. I'm already lost, John. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. Now I'm really lost. I mean, I thought we were taught you should pray for everybody. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Oh, man. What do we do with this? And I'm going to be honest with you here. Commentators are all across the board in this one because this is a really doozy of a couple of verses. I mean, John throws this fantastic curveball at the end that, I mean, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorites, he's a, uh, an old, he's in glory now, but he was a PCA pastor in uh, Philadelphia. He's like, yeah, I have no idea. I love it. He's, his sermon on this passage, he just skips over it. it. means something. I'm not sure what. My understanding of this, and I follow with a number of others in this regard, is... I think John's going to illustrate a very important point here, but it's going to be one that's very unpopular. Uh, And it is this, that the person that he's talking about is somewhere in one of kind of two categories that are a little bit difficult to discern. It's either the person who is in process of doing a Hebrews 6. It's a person who has been in the church, around the church, and experienced the realities of what spirituality and Christianity is. And then decides to thumb their nose at the Lord and reject him willfully. To turn away, 
to flee and to go. Or somewhere along the lines, they could be an unbeliever that's not there. In fact, actually, it's interesting that he says, if you pray, you see a brother committing a sin leading to death, pray for him. But he doesn't use that word when he's talking about the second person. But the bigger point that he's making is that the saint is the one you pray for. And this other outsider, he says, I'm not saying you even need to pray for that. And I'm going to tell you right there, that's the heart of actually what he's addressing. And it's the part that maybe would probably be the most offensive to us. You see, most of us, I think, uh, were raised with well intentions, good intentions have been taught in the church, that we're supposed to pray for everyone and everything and always and everywhere and kind of this all, every kind of concept. But the interesting thing that John is making here is to say, no, look, benefits flow from salvation and being in the church, being in the people of God. When you're in the people of God, you may know that you are saved. In fact, actually, that's one of the tests that he gives for salvation. What's your relationship with the people of God look like? And then he follows it immediately with what your prayers are going to be answered. And then he says, and with the exception, the kind of caveat here, you pray for sinners, for brothers, for saints that are falling into sin. But I'm not saying you even have to pray for the pagan or pray for the apostate or pray for the one who is willfully walking into apostasy. And you think, man, that's, that's harsh, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what to do with that. And I'll be honest with you, I started looking through the New Testament. New Testament uses the word prayer, prayed, prayers in English about mm, 300 and something times. And it's really interesting. Do you know how many of those times it applies to anything outside of the church? Once. Once. In fact, actually, you have a whole bunch of things like Jesus saying in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where right as he's prior to going to the cross, he's praying with the saints in the upper room. And he says, I'm praying. He's praying in the middle of prayer to uh, the Father. He says, I'm praying for them, the disciples. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I'm praying for your people. You have other illustrations like when the the disciples ask Jesus, how should I pray? And he teaches them. You remember the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. Interestingly, does it have the world anywhere in there? Go through it in your head. (laughs) No. All of the requests that are connected to that are either requests connected to God's glory, requests connected to God's plan, or requests connected to God's people. In fact, actually, the only, and there may be another one I missed somehow, but the only one I found was in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul is telling Timothy, and he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. Okay, this is good, but wait for the exception. (laughs) So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Oh, wow. Why am I praying for my elected officials? You may have caught it. I did it in the prayer of intercession today. So that they would be wise enough to lead in such a way that the church may flourish. 
This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. It's interesting. Even the prayer, they're directed for the saints, primarily. And before moving to the next point, I'm recognizing I've probably stepped on a couple of toes at least in the room. I'm not going to go so far as to say that you don't pray for the unbeliever, but realistically, the vast majority of our prayers need to be geared for the church. Why? Because part of John's point here is that there is supposed to be a very clear distinction between those who are inside and those who are outside. The problem is, as in America, we've stopped doing that. And we stopped that from the very beginning. In fact, actually, that's how this country was founded. The Puritans, as they came over on the Arabella, um, the ship that brought the vast majority of the Puritans from England into uh, what would become the United States, they were already preaching on that boat about how this land would be the new kind of repository for the people of God. And they were praising God for his covenant. And while they praised him for his covenant of grace, they began to replicate that same kind of language in what they would term the social covenant. And they began to overlap the church and the state, and they thought this was a good thing until they had babies here. And the problem was they had babies here, and a substantial portion of that first generation of babies grew up to hate God. And then they went, oh, crud. We've, in many ways, copied church and state together. What do we do with this other category of people who hate God? Do we throw them out of the church? Because if we throw them out of the church, we have to throw them out of the state. That's, in fact, actually how Rhode Island was formed. Roger Williams was excommunicated, went and formed a state that was like, we want church and state completely separated. But those that stayed in what would become New York and other places formed a thing that they called the halfway covenant. And the halfway covenant was a policy which allowed for unbelievers to remain halfway in the church so they could remain fully in the state. It's crazy. The second generation in American history, we were already comfortable drawing a circle that said unbelievers and believers in the church. Unbelievers and believers in the church together and treated equally. And it's been intriguing how in pockets of the American churches we've developed, we've seen people kind of return back to this push to say, no, there, there is actually a clear dividing line between those that are inside and those that are outside. There's a Southern Baptist guy in, in Washington, D.C., Mark Dever. His Nine Marks ministry, which is Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And when he start, first started pushing that ministry, one of them is very rigid membership requirements. People were like, you'll never grow your church. And he's like, it's the only way to be healthy. A clear dividing line between those that are inside and those that are outside. John's pushing it slightly differently, saying, look, even the content of our prayers is geared toward the church. If we see saints that are falling into sin and we see them headlong rushing into things that are going to do them harm, but they're still saints, pour out your heart for that person. But for apostates, you don't, unbelievers, you're not obligated to them in the same way. You're not obligated. And again, I'll put it in just brass tacks, lowest level. Think about how often we pray for the government. 
Are we praying for the government for the government's sake? Or are we praying for the government for the church's sake? That's what Paul means in 1 Timothy. Clear dividing line between who's in and who's out. Even in prayer. I'm going to keep pushing on. He doesn't stop with prayer. Verse 18, he, he then applies that to protection. We know that everybody who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. There's your mark. We know that this is the case. He was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. God provides a protective barrier around the saints. And he does this only for his people in this way. And it's interesting, part of what he uses is the church. The saints are part of his protection. We know we're from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Everything we interact with, it's constantly under the power of the evil one. The only ones who are protected perfectly and ultimately are God's people. Paul makes this point similar to talking about being slave to sin or slave to the powers of this earth, being a slave to righteousness or slave servant of God. Who's your master? Clear dividing lines. Third, privilege and blessing is in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given understanding so that we may know him who is true. You see, part of being the people of God is that the Spirit comes in and illumines your mind so that you're able to understand what you couldn't understand on your own. Finishing up my final paper for school outside of my dissertation, writing on the parables. And and parables are so unique because what is a parable? You think about the parables that Jesus told. The vast majority of them, if you didn't read them in the scripture, you would think they were secular stories. A story about a little seed that grows up to be a giant bush and the birds rest in the branches of the bush. It sounds like a secular story, doesn't it? A story about a a sower who puts seed out and the seed lands on four types of soil. And some of them produce plants that are good and some produce plants that are bad and some have it taken away and one produces plants that actually has fruit. And you would think, man, that, that sounds like a secular story. But once the Spirit illumines it and opens our eyes and helps us understand, we say, no, look, that's a story about the kingdom of God. It's not a story about a mustard seed. It's a story about God's kingdom. It's a story about the church. It's going to grow. It's going to be victorious. It's not a story about seed and plants. It's a story about the gospel taking root in people's lives. It's a story about the heart being transformed. We're given understanding as part of being in God's people. And this is amazing to think about. That for the little ones in the room that already have regenerate hearts, they already have been given the understanding that some of us didn't receive until much later in life. That's really fun to think about. That the Spirit is already informing their mind. So they're reading the scriptures in a way that some of you, you didn't get until you were converted in your 40s or 50s or 60s or whatever. Because there's a clear distinction between saints and non-saints. God's people are given understanding. Those others are not. They don't have the lens to see. They don't have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the heart to understand. There is a massive distinction between the two. 
Now, I appreciate this because John has set out for us a, a good reminder, I think particularly for the American church, particularly for the South. Because in essence, part of what he's saying is, look, everyone who professes isn't actually a Christian, which is pretty spectacular because everybody in the South thinks they're a Christian by, being, by virtue of being born in the South or raised in the South or having Christians that live somewhere in their neighborhood, most likely. <laughs> You know, I, I love this as being a pastor. I've told you this story before, but when I talk with folks, I say, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, great. I go to such and such church. Sure you do. What's the pastor's name? It's my first question always. Um, um, oh, no, it doesn't have to be the senior. Just give me any pastor's name in the church. Um, I, I hate to be rude. You don't go to that church. I, mean, I don't care if you, I mean, Pastor Tim, I don't know his last name. Fine, I don't care. You know, a guy at the church, that's fine. I'm, I believe you. You can't name any personal staff at the church. I have a tough time believing you actually go to the church. You see, the problem is here in America, we've done this in the South particularly, where we've, we've very much like our country has been founded, been willing to draw a circle that includes everybody. And the, the, the problem with that has been, it has weakened our understanding of what Christianity is. The second thing is that if you actually go back and study church history, all of the big revivals take place when the church is at her most different, not her most similar. When when she's taking a stand for the Bible and comfortable being labeled as weird or strange or peculiar or particular, those are the moments where revival follows. It's never when she's identical to the culture. We saw this this week, uh, you know, the PCUSA, our, our old mother denomination, announced their stats. And again, they're continuing to hemorrhage. I think they've lost 50% of their members in the last 10 years or so. And their stated clerk kind of came out, the, the bigwig of the denomination said, you know, we realize this has been a chance for us to kind of reconsider. We've really failed at evangelism because we've not been and then kind of gets the next part wrong. But you begin to kind of go, well, you got the first part right. Why would we want to go to a place that's no different than what I already am as a denomination? And I hope that they use this time to reconsider their situation as a denomination. I hope that's the case. I know there's good pockets of PCUSA churches. I'm going to assume that. But the danger that we do the same thing. Incomfortable of just saying, look, we're going to be social and casual Christians in such a way that everybody gets in. And not be willing to make that distinction. Now, I also recognize that if we do this, some of you already are kind of bucking at this and thinking, man, this is going to make me proud. This is going to make me kind of... And I love John, I think, provides a good corrective to that at the very end. How does it, how does it end? Oh, yeah, by the way, one more thing. Pause, pause, pause. Pay attention to idols because you're bozos too, and if you're not careful, you'll go the same path. Just because you have a new nature, just because you are a saint, just because you have all of these privileges, it does not mean that you are instantaneously freed from sin. I wish that that were the case. I would be out of a job, but I would still love it. I could find a new profession. But I wish that that were the case, that the second we got converted, there was, there was no more struggle with sin. He's like, no, 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 no. Just because you're in the church doesn't mean that your victory over sin is just instantaneous. No, instead, you have to be careful. You have to work at it. You have to be intentional to have victory in Christ. 
to practice holiness, to live in his presence. I make one last very quick application for us. The Observer ran an article, I think it was two weeks ago, that labeled Fort Mill as the fastest growing town in America, more than 15,000 people. Out of all of America, every town with more than 15,000 people were the fastest in America. Our population density is spiking, which you feel every day you try to drive anywhere, anytime between, say, four and six. How does a town this size have rush hour? This is crazy. There's going to be a continuing and greater challenge for us as this church grows and in this community as it grows for us to water ourselves down. To be comfortable with a blurred line between who's in and who's out. To be comfortable with a blurred line between what a Christian is and what a non-Christian is. To say they're really not that different. When in fact they are. And I suspect that for many of us, we will probably be tempted to follow the same pattern that our 444444 fathers did in New England. With the halfway covenant, and it's interesting, scholars and theologians have well documented, they understand exactly why they did the halfway covenant. They understand exactly why that compromise was done. Because of money. There was so much wealth that they were no longer willing to stand for their principles. And it's interesting, our community is booming, but as it's booming in population, it's booming in affluence. And may it never be that we ourselves fall prey to the money and lose our distinction in being Christ-like. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it is difficult for us to understand and apply, even when it hurts our feelings. Lord, we thank you for easy passages. We thank you for hard ones like this one. We thank you that there are great benefits attached to being in your people, to being redeemed by the blood of Christ. We ask that you would make us kind and compassionate and gracious, that we would be quick to invite others in to experience these same wonderful benefits. I can't imagine living in a world that doesn't have the three that we talked about today, living a life that has no protection guaranteed. Live a life that does not have the promise of God listening, of living in just pure mystery, a life filled without understanding. We have it so good as your people. May we be eager in inviting others in to be a part of this, to know you and to love you. And, oh, Lord, would you please give conversions. Grow your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.